0: Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of Fraud Talk. I'm Courtney Howell, Community Manager at the ACFE. Today, I'm chatting with Emily Wilson, Vice President of Research at Terbium Labs. Thank you for joining us today, Emily.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, so just to get us started, I would like to know a little bit about your background uh, at Terbium Labs and about becoming a CFE and how that all ties together.
1: Sure. So I've been at Terbium for... Uh, Three and a half, going on four years now. My background isn't in cybersecurity or in technology even. I actually have a degree in international relations. And before I was working at Terbium, I was doing some research and development work for tech clients in the Middle East and West Africa. Um, And so I sort of came to tech by accident, if you will, but I fell in love with it um, and I've enjoyed my time at Terbium. Terbium is a dark web intelligence company. And so what that means in practice is we are monitoring the dark web to detect when companies' sensitive information shows up in the criminal underground. So that might be customer data or employee data, uh, intellectual property and other corporate data. So in order to do that, part of my job is knowing what's going on on the dark web and tracking and researching trends and developments. Now, in the course of doing that, I found that Most of the information that I was seeing, most of the information that we care about is tied back to fraud. Mm -hmm. And so becoming a CFE was sort of a natural progression from there because I see the information that's being used to commit these frauds. I see the tactics and techniques being used to develop these new fraud schemes and so I wanted to become a part of the community so that I could share that information and help people to understand sort of where all of this is coming from.
0: That sounds really interesting, and I can't wait to dig even more into what you do. But before we go too far down that road, uh, we hear a lot of terms being thrown around about you know, the web, you know like clear web, surface web, deep web, and dark web. Uh, what do all those mean, and specifically, what is the dark web?
1: Sure. So you're right. There are a lot of terms that are thrown around here. Some of them are used interchangeably, and sometimes that's okay, and sometimes uh, that's that's a little bit more incorrect. So the clear web or the surface web is the part of the Internet that we all use every day, just going about our normal lives. When you check the weather, that's the clear web. When you read the news or check a sports score, that's the clear web. Then there's the deep web, and people, you know, people will often use this picture of an iceberg, which is kind of a really inaccurate representation of what the sort of levels of the Internet look like, but the idea of the deep web that people have is this big, hidden, scary, under-the-surface uh, portion of the Internet that's hidden away from everybody. And that's not quite accurate. The deep web just means that this is a part of the Internet that you, you know, maybe won't find on Google, Um, And you might need a little bit of extra information to access. So the clear web, if you want to find something on the clear web, you can put it into a search engine. Google will pull it up for you. You know, I can Google weather in Baltimore, and it will bring me to weather.com for Baltimore City. For the deep web, this is information, this is parts of the Internet that you're not going to find on a search engine. And that might sound like it would be criminal or sketchy, but the deep web is something like, if I log into my bank account, that account statement page that I see, that's the deep web. You know, If you were Googling, you couldn't get to my account page um, without having my username and password. You can't pull that up. The same thing if you log into a social media account. Any of the protected or private posts that are on your timeline or your newsfeed, that's the deep web. If you are kind of going through... ACFE's community forums where you need to use your credentials to log in. That's the deep web. But, of course, criminals use some of these same tactics and techniques to hide their content away on the deep web as well. And we actually see a lot of fraud communities that that work on the deep web. So not fully hidden in the dark, but not out in the open. And then there's the dark web. And that's where I tend to spend most of my time. The dark web is just another part of the internet. It's just another level of the internet, like the surface web or the deep web. But you're not going to find it on Google, and you need a little bit of extra tech to get there. And when I say extra tech, I don't mean a big hacker setup like people tend to show in the movies where you've got you know a bunch of different screens with code running. That's not how it works in practice. <laughs> mm-hmm. To access the dark web, all you actually need is a new browser, So the same way you would use Chrome or Safari uh, Safari or Firefox, there is a browser that will access the dark web for you. It has some privacy and anonymizing technologies built into it. You just download it, and you can go. It's that easy, which is good and bad.
0: Yeah, I can imagine uh, some people might get into trouble (laughs) with such an easy access to the dark web. So you're dealing with fraud, and you're looking at everything that's coming across the dark web and a lot of that i'm sure is stolen information identities things like that what is the journey of that data and how does it show up
1: sure so i think um before i jump into that i think one more point to make about the dark web to your point of you know people could get into trouble pretty easily Mm -hmm. one of the biggest misconceptions that you know we need to fight about the dark web is that it is inherently criminal or that using the dark web we will get you in trouble or will compromise your safety in some way. The dark web, as I mentioned, is it's just another part of the Internet. And it was designed, it actually came out of the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory as a technology for secure and private communications and secure and private Internet usage. It was designed as a privacy and security tool, and most of the activity and the content on the dark web is perfectly legal. And so I think any situation where someone is describing the dark web as being inherently criminal or dangerous or you're going to take your life into your hands if you even look at it, <laughs> that's that's negligent behavior. That's an inaccurate description. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff on the dark web that's, that's perfectly legal uh, and reasonable. That said to your question about fraud and stolen information, criminals also use that privacy and that anonymity to hide away and to create uh, criminal communities in this part of the internet. So the stolen data that I see, because I do see a lot of stolen data, exposed data, compromised data, all these terms that we hear thrown around, what I want you to imagine is this. Imagine a site like Amazon or eBay where you can log on, There are advertisements on the home page. There is a uh, a search box. There are a series of categories to let you know what kinds of goods and services are available. And you go in and you you kind of know what you're looking for. Maybe you enter some search terms. Maybe you go over to a certain category and follow a drop-down menu. And then you look through and see what's available for sale. You look at different reviews. You choose the item that you need. You check out and you wait for it to be delivered. Mm -hmm. That's how the dark web works for fraud. That's how the dark web works for uh, stolen payment cards, for social security numbers, for tax information, for passport and driver's license templates. It's set up like a massive e-commerce platform, and you can basically go and choose between hundreds or thousands of vendors, all of whom are offering stolen information for very low prices.
0: So basically it's like whatever flavor of fraud you want to commit, if you're a fraudster, you can you can go on the dark web and just look for that particular piece of information that you might want to commit that fraud.
1: It is exactly that. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're not sure what kind of fraud you want to commit, <laughs> there are plenty of forums and communities where people are discussing different tactics, where people are advertising different types of information. And there are also things like guides and tutorials that you can purchase, again, for a surprisingly low price Mm -hmm. that will teach you how to commit certain types of fraud that will teach you how to cash out a stolen payment card it will teach you how to take over a bank account it will teach you how to create a synthetic identity you can go and buy these guides and it will teach you step by step how to do this and so if you are new to the game as it were you're never going to be short of resources whether it's information or or data to Uh, to run through these fraud schemes.
0: Hearing all of that, I'm like, wow, I'm guessing that some people (laughs) who maybe aren't as familiar with the dark web and like what's going on there might be going, "Uh, that's overwhelming. How are we ever going to stop this? How are we ever going to fight against this if the information is that readily available to people for fraud examiners? How do they handle that?
1: Sure. It is, it can be overwhelming. And I think one of the One of the things that is important to me is making sure that people understand how it works and how easily information is available. Because I think it changes our perspective of what it means to combat fraud or it changes our perspective on what is important or sensitive. And so I think for fraud examiners, uh, the thing that I, I want people to understand is that cybersecurity threats are real. Uh, cybersecurity risks are real. These are things to be concerned about. But these same types of fraud that you have been battling or investigating your entire career, this is one of the source points for that information. This is one of the source points for those schemes. And so it's easy to be overwhelmed by it, but the important thing is to connect it back to the work that you're already doing understand it as a new tool or a new resource or a new mechanism for gathering data to commit different types of fraud, but plug it into the, the information that you already have. The other thing to keep in mind is that knowing that this type of information is out there and knowing that it's readily available and that people are, you know, really becoming professionalized fraudsters and are really building up some automated fraud schemes is it allows us to start to be a little bit more proactive in some of the digital fraud prevention as opposed to being reactive. You know, if we know for example that payment card fraud is always going to be a problem, financial institutions know that, fraud professionals know that. But if we know that a lot of the stolen payment cards that are being used to commit this type of fraudulent activity are for sale on the dark web, then we can begin to work a little bit back, a little bit further back in the supply chain of fraud, if you will, and not wait for this activity to happen, but begin to look at the information that's available and say, how can we start to identify this? How can we start to think about ways to take the information that's up on these marketplaces and use that to guide us in preventing this fraud or blocking this fraud before it happens, as opposed to trying to develop, you know, even more nuanced reactive schemes.
0: That kind of makes me think about what you're talking about earlier about it is negligent for people to say there's only criminal activity. That's like one side of the spectrum, and then the other side is it's totally fine. Just hop in there. There's nothing to worry about. So for someone who's never ventured into the dark web and they're just learning about it, what's your sort of advice for maybe dipping their toes, or how should someone go in, go about learning how to get into the dark web?
1: Yeah, definitely. So there are there are a lot of good resources out there. We certainly make a lot of educational materials available at Terbium Labs. It's a big part of what I do is making kind of context and educational information available about this for the public. There are also uh, organizations like the TOR Project, T O R, the TOR Project. That's a group that's behind this dark web browser that I mentioned. They have a lot of good information and resources about accessing the dark web safely. I think the important thing for for most fraud examiners, for most fraud examiners who are going about the work that they are doing, you probably will never need to venture into the dark web yourself, specifically in search of a piece of data or a piece of information. It's going to be more important to understand when to call in an expert, when to call in maybe your technical teams, your cybersecurity teams. But more importantly, to understand the context of this, to understand the scope of the problem, to begin to piece together some of these discrete activities that you're seeing or these you know, patterns of behavior that you're seeing and think, is there a bigger problem here? Is this potentially connected to some of the crime syndicates that are operating out of these criminal communities? And so I think, you know, there's uh, there's not necessarily any harm in someone going and, beginning to look around the dark web, you definitely want to take certain technical precautions. Most fraud examiners won't need to do it themselves. But I think understanding how it works and understanding what's out there is going to be a big leap forward in in some of these fraud investigations.
0: I was actually listening to a series on Amazon about the dark web, and the host was saying how he predicted that in a few years everyone would be using some sort of dark web browser just because it provides so much protection from your data being stolen. So I kind of wanted to see what you thought about that and then also what other sort of trends and predictions we might be seeing on the dark web since you're in there a lot and you are on the front lines of what is being passed around.
1: Sure. So to the question of whether or not this is a technology that will be more broadly adopted for browsing in the future, I think that's certainly possible. You know, there was a time when people wanted to know why you would have secured web pages on the clear web, thinking it was an unnecessary level of security or why would you need to go all of those extra lengths? Or even something like a two-factor authentication where, you know, when you try to log into an account, it sends you a text message or requires you to put in a code or some other piece of information in order to get into your account. Those seemed like overkill until they weren't. Um, and now they are widely adopted uh, patterns of behavior that make the Internet safer and more secure. And tech companies, you know, they go out of their way to warn you if you're entering into an insecure site. I think the same thing with the dark web, because again, you know, the, the thing about the dark web that makes it very useful for criminals is that it obfuscates the user behavior and the user location information, which might sound like something you would only want if you're trying to commit a crime, but it's actually something that a lot of people, is important to them day to day. Because, you know, you want to, you know, you worry about your information being stolen by criminals or being used to commit fraud. But there's a bigger issue of sort of data privacy and data security in that most of us also probably don't want our Internet service provider monitoring our Internet activity and selling that information to marketers. Mm -hmm. And so the dark web, using dark web browsing technology, is one way to get around that uh, because your information isn't being recorded and because there's no clear path from, Uh, the activity that you are doing on on the internet to, you know, your internet service provider being able to record that and and trace that back to you. So that's my answer for that first piece. Uh, For the second piece about kind of what I'm seeing happen or where I see the internet or where I see trends on the dark web going, uh, there are a couple of things that I'm watching. One, I'm interested to see over the next year or so uh, if there are more law enforcement takedowns of dark web fraud communities. We've seen big law enforcement takedowns on dark web communities before, but they've been isolated more toward drugs or weapons, things we think of as big, sexy problems in the news. <laughs> I think we all know that it can be difficult to get attention or or budget for fraud because people don't think of it as a, a big, sexy problem. They think of it as a cost of doing business. But we're beginning to see that change. I think we're beginning to see that fraud is not only a, a massive systemic issue, but also stolen information, stolen uh, payment data. This type of information is being used to commit larger crimes. It's being used to subsidize massive criminal activity, whether it's terrorism or human trafficking or um nuclear weapons, we're seeing that people recognize fraud as a lucrative means to fund broader criminal enterprises. And I think law enforcement is beginning to pay attention to that. And So I think we'll see more attention paid there. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'll mention is I'm beginning to see more child data being sold on the dark web. Mm -hmm. Child data, I'm talking about like personal information for infants. Um, This is being sold and being marketed it's concerning. Um, I had originally written it off as a fluke when I saw it first a couple of years ago, but there's been kind of a steady pattern of behavior, uh, and so I'm watching that because I think, you know, as we all face a world where our information has been compromised, and fraudsters are looking for fresh information and and new uh, identities to compromise, in one <laughs> one fresh source of information is to get it from babies.
0: That's scary. I'm sure it's just like another worry for parents that causes a lot of anxiety. <laughs> it
1: is a point of concern. I think, thankfully, there there are things people can do about it, mm-hmm. right? We as adults, we should all, my, my, my personal and professional recommendation is that everyone should freeze their credit. You know, yeah. we have identity monitoring services from these major um, credit reporting agencies, and that's fine. But what that will do is it will tell you If a line of credit has been opened, which means that if it wasn't you that opened it, then you have to go through the process of remediation and getting it shut down and tracking all of that back. Mm -hmm. If you freeze your credit, then you block any new accounts from being opened. You block any new credit lines from being created. And if you need to reopen it yourself, if you're applying for a loan or you need a new credit card, you can unfreeze it open that new line, and freeze it again. That's an option that's available for adults, but it's also available for children. And I would strongly encourage parents to freeze their children's credit because otherwise, if you just hope that nothing's going to happen, when you go to apply for student loans or get a, a first car in 10 or 15 years, you might be a little surprised at what you find.
0: Earlier when you are talking about the first trend – saying how, you know, fraud wasn't a big sexy crime, but I feel like maybe in the last year that has been changing. I feel like I've been seeing tons of splashy stories about fraudsters in like pop culture and the media, especially like recently the fire festival documentaries, those just blew up. It's definitely becoming more sensational, I feel like.
1: I think it is, and I think I think technology has created a means to commit fraud on an even grander and more terrifying scale mm-hmm. than we would have seen 10, 15, even five years ago, right? Whether this is the shift from uh, physical to digital frauds, whether it's that, you know, there are a lot more people who have access to, you know, fraud scheme information now, and they can go out and sort of build their own little criminal syndicate. Or whether it's just that we all operate in a world where we're all very busy and we're all tied into technology all the time and we deal with a lot of disinformation and misinformation and you know there's so much there's so much stimuli coming in that you have a difficult time thinking critically and you want to trust what you see and read. You know, I think all of those things can contribute to something like the Fire Festival which Watching that documentary was definitely an experience (laughs) Um, where people aren't really asking questions, where you can fudge numbers or you can find money, you know, find money in quotation marks. And then, you know, you can make everything look okay because no one is asking really hard questions. And then, of course, as we all see with fraud, eventually it snowballs to a point where, you know, you reach a critical mass and you just can't keep going and it all falls apart. I do think technology has made it easier to To get to a much higher point before it all falls apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people know that. They take advantage of it. You know, con men are no longer having to go from town to town and rely entirely on social engineering. They have now a wealth of technology backing them, and they can build much bigger, broader fraud schemes, and they can hire a bunch of people to work with them on that process, um, and they can be, you know, geolocated all over the world, and that makes it much harder to to shut fraud down because you're not limited to just yourself and your own physical power.
0: Wow, another overwhelming thing to consider. (laughs) That actually brings me to the last thing I kind of wanted to touch on. I read an article that you wrote about the state of data and data security, and you were basically like, there's no hope that your data can be protected. <laughs> um, it's going to get out there. Um, so I kind of wanted to know if you could speak on that a little bit and kind of what your thoughts on that are and if there's any advice you have for people.
1: Sure. So yes, anyone who's spoken to me for more than a few minutes will know that I am a pragmatist at best about <laughs> the future of data privacy. Mm-hmm. Um and The reason for that is twofold. One, we see time and again that data breaches are happening more frequently at a larger scale and having a much greater impact than they have in years past. You know, it used to be that we were concerned when we saw a data breach that happened at all or that impacted a few thousand people or a hundred thousand people we are now seeing frequent headlines about new data breaches that are impacting hundreds of millions if not billions of people. And over time that exposure compounds. And over time eventually you, you know, it's bad enough to have your email address or your email address and password exposed. Those are things you can change. Or if someone steals your credit card, you know, the fraud is a problem, but the bank can shut it down and reissue it. But when it comes to things like uh, lifetime data, which would be you know your name, your social security number, you know your date of birth in combination with that, or your mother 's maiden name. this kind of information, even address you know people probably aren 't going to sell their home because of fraud. Um, once this information is exposed it 's valuable for the rest of your life it 's valuable for decades to come. And there aren't a lot of ways that people can recoup that. You can't really undo that once it's exposed. So that's one side of the problem is that, you know, data exposure is inevitable. um, And we have to try to manage it as best we can, but there aren't a lot of tools for consumers to do anything about it at a personal level. The other side of it, and something that certainly concerns me in the work that I do, and I touched on this a little bit with the you know, internet service providers recording information for marketing purposes, but we have these giant tech companies that we all rely on, that we have to rely on to interact and transact with the world. Even if you opt out of social media, most people cannot go entirely off of the grid and continue to interact in their daily lives, whether that's swiping your card at a grocery store, depositing a paycheck in your bank account, or you know using Google Maps to figure out how to get to a new location. you know All of that data is being recorded and uh, collated between sources. And tech companies know that. They rely on it. They rely on being able to monetize this information to serve you ads. So we not only have to worry about data breaches and the information in the hands of the criminals, but we also have to worry about the fact that Some of these major organizations, I'm thinking about Facebook in particular, have not only personal information, but preference information, uh, political information. And it's very difficult for us to consume news and information or to interact with the world when we know that there's an agenda to everything that we're being served. Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm trying to find optimism for a path forward here where – you know the future of data security is looking very grim, and the future of data privacy is perhaps looking even grimmer. And there are no incentives for criminals or for tech companies to do anything differently. Dang. <laughs> I wish I had a happier answer for yeah. you, but I—it's a real problem. And I'm hoping. You know, I think we are—we are seeing whether it's with GDPR, the General Data Privacy Regulation in Europe, where Facebook is now being served up some fines, or you know even in congress Maxine Waters a few months ago saying you know the thing with Equifax is not over we're not done here or even recently you know in the wake of the Yahoo data breach which is still sort of being remediated the judge saying no Yahoo you can't make a a blanket payment and decide that you are done making amends for this because we can't measure the impact yet so we can't know what you owe people in damages i think we are beginning to see people catch on to the mm-hmm broad impact of this issue, but it's sort of how much damage is going to be done before we have to try and backfill remedies, I, I don't know. I don't know. Because again, the incentives are not there for criminals or for tech companies to do things any differently.
0: Yeah. I was going to say that maybe the tiniest glimmer of optimism can be that I have noticed more people are growing aware of this problem, and maybe we don't have solutions yet, but at least there's a growing awareness.
1: There is a growing awareness, and I think the other thing, and I I think I touched on this in the article that you mentioned, the other thing that we have going for this is that we are all in this problem together. Mm. No one is immune from this issue, which is both very sobering, but it also means that it's not just you and me and and some of the listeners who are experiencing this. It's it's everyone who's hearing this has a problem with this. This is, you know... Everything from me and you to legislators and and politicians to lobbyists to executives, you know, elementary school teachers to, you know, the deans of major universities, this is a, uh, a worldwide problem. And eventually, I think we are going to see enough fallout from people who are empowered to make changes here that they may have enough of a personal stake in the issue to begin to push through uh, push through some developments that might result in greater privacy. That's that's sort of the only glimmer of hope that I have personally
0: on this. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I feel like this was very illuminating
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: I really yeah. appreciate it So if you enjoyed today's episode Emily will be talking about the dark web at the 30th annual ACFE global fraud conference in Austin, Texas this coming June Remember, you can find all episodes of Fraud Talk at acfe.com slash podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Courtney Howell signing off.